Good morning, everybody. Man, I am excited for today. I've been thinking about this message since November, so it is welled up inside of me. And then I, uh, Lizzie and I made eye contact during that first song. I, most of you guys know this, um, but I'm, I, 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 it bears repeating regularly. We don't sit down and have planning meetings about this is the message and this is the songs we're going to go do so that they tie in with the message. I don't look at the kids' curriculum in advance. Um, and, and it's not that we're, I'm against planning. I love a plan. I love being organized. But it's, A, we don't have time for that. But, but the really cool thing is, is how God is, just intermixes some of those things. So I want to call a couple of those things out this morning as we get started. Um, firstly, if you'll notice, all of the songs that we talked about this morning are in the genre of following God's lead. And then that last one, man, I, was, I don't know if y'all could tell, I was in on that one because... What, it, what it's proclaiming and, and what the kids' story talked about today is that the things that God's going to speak today, he already knows what they are, and he's already accomplished it in his kingdom. He's just asking us to be a part of the process. So all the things we're going to talk about today, some of it might feel heavy to you, some of it might feel very daunting to you, and I just want us to go into this with the confidence that I have that if God is telling us to do this, the battle's already been won. It's already, the victory is ours, we just got to go get it. Okay, um, this morning, uh, Nathaniel, I loved, I loved when, when the story started, I didn't know where it was going, when it talks about Philip going and getting his friend Nathaniel and being like, I have found the Messiah, and Nathaniel's like, uh, I don't know about that, and he's like, just, just come see. Man, what a great picture for us, and then Jesus to say to Nathaniel, I saw you before Philip ever went and got you. Man, what a great way for us to, to kick off today. Um, this is always one of my favorite Sundays of the year because it helps me personally to kind of refocus. You know, we, we've spent the whole last year studying the book of Luke. We're in the middle of chapter 8, and, and that seems like a year ago was forever ago. And so for me to be able to sit down starting in November and say, okay, God, we're in the middle of the study that you've called us to do. Um, is our focus exactly the same? What do you have for us this year? And God really has spoken a lot over the last month of I've, as I've spent time praying over this message and having conversations with God. I want to I shout out to Bethany for sharing last week. She's back there with the kids, but uh, she did an amazing job of laying the groundwork for what we're going to talk about today. One of the things that she shared that I want to call her attention back to was Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 9, verse 37 and 38. It says, then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his field. Again, with that idea of God saw Nathaniel before Philip ever went and got him. And God sees the people in our lives, in our community, that he wants to draw into his kingdom. And he's already preparing that work in advance of us. She also mentioned uh, the prayer from Bob Pierce. I love it. He, he said, let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. And I, I wanted to draw our attention back to those two things this morning. As we dive into the message that God has for us, I want us to be thinking about ministry in those ways. What Bethany shared last week is not just a call for our next-gen ministry, for our, our kids and our teenagers and our young adults. This is a call for us as a church. And I wanted us to start today by thinking about what vision is in the context of your church. If you've got a, a handout today or an outline, it's got this quote put in there. This is from a guy named Nick, Nikki Gumbel, and Bethany sent this to me this week. I know she shared it with her life group last week, but I love it. It's going to frame how we approach today. It says, vision is a holy discontent. 
a deep dissatisfaction with what is combined with a clear grasp of what could be. It is a picture, a mental sight of the future that inspires hope. Today I want us to to begin by thinking about where we are and where God's calling us to go to. And I want to be completely transparent with you as we begin this morning by saying, I have been very worried about our church over the last year or so. And I haven't kept that a secret. I've talked with some of you about it. I've certainly talked with our elders about it a lot. Um, And I've had a lot of conversations with God about the health of our body. We've been sending out a lot of people over the last four years, but not bringing in quite as many. A few months ago, God put a book in front of me that was a tremendous encouragement to me on that front. This is a book by Andrew Root and Blair D. Bertrand that it's called When Church Stops Working, A Future for Your Congregation Beyond More Money, Programs, and Innovation. God gave me so much encouragement, encouragement that I needed as I read this book. All of the things that the author described as the quote-unquote problems that the churches in the United States face were all things that I've encountered in my life. And based on conversations I've had with you, I know that they're things that you encountered in your life. And what encouraged me was that nearly all of the things that they suggested as fixes were not programmatic in nature. They were things that God has been doing in our body since the beginning of this church for over a decade. I'm encouraged because I know each of you personally. I know your relationship with the Lord. I know your desire to know Him and to follow Him. And as we unfold today what God's speaking for our body, it's my prayer and my hope that you will be as encouraged as I am. Because that fear that I had, that anxiety I had about our church is completely gone. So I want to start today with talking about who we are and where we've been. This is our, this blew my mind. I discovered this, Janet prompted me to look this up at our Christmas party when we were prepping for it the, the, the Monday before. This is our 10th year in this building, in this neighborhood. 10 years. That is mind-boggling. I was talking with Bethany about this this week. I have been in the Gathering Place Church longer than I was on staff at any other churches combined. Most of my adult spiritual life at this point has been with this body of believers. People ask me all the time how long we've been here. Typically, I'll be like, I don't know, seven or eight years, you know, with COVID and all that, like I lost track of time. But we moved here in 2014. Last week, Bethany laid out for us the progress that God has made here in our ministry in this community. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more. But I want to talk about our history for a moment. Because some of you guys were there from the beginning, but some of you have joined us along the way. So I want to give you a brief history. The Gathering Place Church was born out of the death of what used to be Donahue Family Church. That church died for a lot of reasons. We're not going to delve into that. But when God started the Gathering Place in 2010, the goal was simple. We wanted to be the kind of church that you see in Scripture. When you look at the book of Acts, that's what we wanted our church to look like. Our focus was to to be on God and to simply follow His lead. We left all of our quote-unquote sacred cows in the past. We said none of that matters. What's important is our relationship with God. We wanted to simply pursue our Savior. When we started, we didn't have some of the, what I like to call, handles that we have today. We didn't have the abiding cycle. We didn't have a working understanding of grace. We didn't know how to engage the Holy Spirit in our day-to-day activities. We started, though, with a dream of experiencing God 
in a fresh way on a daily basis and letting that daily experience transform our personal lives and our church. And I see a few heads nodding around here because you know that's what it was. And, and my perspective is that is still who we are today. Very quickly, we began to grow. And before long, we were too big for the building that we had moved into in the Lee Heights neighborhood. And we had no desire to go back into investing a ton of time and money and our resources into building campaigns and building another big campus. So after a lot of prayer and wrestling with God, we obeyed his call to plant two new churches, and those were the Gathering Place Wardville and the Gathering Place West. We didn't even know that this building was here when we first moved to this community. We were meeting down the street. One of our elders at the time had an office there. Mickey worked there along with me, and we met in a tiny little conference room for almost a year. And one day, Glenn, who was the pastor at the time, rode his motorcycle this way down McKithen and saw this building here. And we began a process of God providing this building for us. And through God's provision, we now own this building free and clear. We don't have any debt, uh, which is an incredible work of God. As we moved into this space, God began opening doors for us in this community, specifically through the children that live here. I was thinking about this last night. Our first Wednesday that we owned the building, Bethany and I showed up, we unlocked that glass door, turned the lights on, and we came in here with a few of our students that had come with us to this area, and, and three little heads popped past that door, and two of those little heads still live in the townhouses, Quindavian and Quintravian. Great, great, great guys. Love them dearly. Over the last nine years, we've seen God grow and develop our church. We grew in this space. And in 2020, right after COVID, God called us to launch another TGP out of this body, which became TGP Colleen. And so some of our church moved there. And as we grew over that period, over the last 10 years, our Wednesday night team and ministry has grown into a robust group of men and women who love this neighborhood dearly. Even though we're very successful on Wednesday nights, we still have not gained the traction, though, with the adults in this community that I believe that God is calling us to have. As we often mention, every time we have a community event, more adults come, and our relationships with them are growing. And even though they come, they are still not connected with our body in the meaningful ways that you all experience on a weekly basis through your relationships with one another, through your life groups, and then through our Sunday morning worship time. So where are we going? What's God saying in all this? I believe that God is saying that this is the direction that he's moving our body, that his primary goal for us this year is to develop meaningful relationships with the people in our community. God wants the people of this neighborhood to know him and to experience what it means to be loved by God and to be loved by the church. I want to I I just pause and say, I could not be more excited about anything. So excited. I'm going to give you some testimony at the end to, to help you understand why I'm so excited. But several observations before we get there have surfaced as I've talked to people, as I've prayed, as I've thought about all of this. And this is not an exhaustive list. In fact, I'd like for your life groups this week as you meet, or Felter Life Group, if y'all don't meet tomorrow because of the weather, we'll talk about it the following week. I'm coming. I'm going to be a part of the conversation. But here's some observations. And like I said, not exhaustive, but these are the ones that pop in my mind. Okay, the first one is, our personal spiritual lives are growing, and I want to be super clear about that. As we spend time with each other, and as I spend time with you, and we hear the testimony about God's activity in your life, you undoubtedly are growing, and that's incredible. I can see it. Others can see it. It's wonderful. 
But part of growing is learning how to share that growth and engage with people who've not experienced what you have. Again, I want to draw us back to the story from the kids' message today about Philip going to find his friend Nathaniel. And Nathaniel being like, I don't know about that. And he's like, just come see. Just come see. We need to be able to share who Jesus is in meaningful ways and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and to obey his call to be a disciple maker. More on this in a little bit. Second observation. Our, our authenticity, while good, can be intimidating to visitors. This idea, or this tidbit, came out of a conversation with David Hill just before he moved. And I'll be honest, I was shocked by that. He was telling me about he and Leah when they first started coming here and how intimidated they were by how close we were and how much we shared with one another. And from, from our previous church experiences, we all know that what we experience here on a Sunday morning in life groups is not typical. Being honest with ourselves and with one another about where we are, what we're struggling with, is not the norm in most churches today. To go from living behind the facade that most churches operate in to, to corporately and not acknowledging our own humanity and our faults and our failures can be shocking, to say the least. And I don't believe we need to be less authentic. We just need to be aware so that we can be sensitive and help people make the same transition that we had to make ourselves. Simply talking about it is gonna, and, and helping them to understand the personal value that you find and being that authentic with other people is going to help them tremendously. Third observation. Some people in our community do not know that we are a church. I'm going to say that again. I was blown away. Some people in our community do not know that we are a church. We pass out flyers to our community for all of our big events, and Bethany always puts her cell phone on the bottom of that flyer, so if anybody has any questions, they can call her and she can answer those questions. She had somebody call before our Truck or Treat event this year and ask for directions. That person lived in the townhouses, I believe, and they didn't know that there was a church that existed right here. About a week before that, she met someone else in our neighborhood who did not realize that this was a church. I was shocked, but it helped me to realize that just because my brain sees this shape of a building and automatically says that's a church does not mean that that's true for everybody. Of course I know it's a church. I've been coming here for a decade, right? But people who've moved into this neighborhood, when they see this building, we don't have a steeple. There's not really a cross on our sign. There's one in the logo, but you've got to be looking for it. Our name doesn't say church, right? And so people don't know that we're here. Third thing, or fourth thing, we need to think about how we publicly engage with our community. Think about it. We have a Facebook group, right? Cool, great. It's private. If you don't go to our church, you can't see what's happening in it. Our signage is not super great. It doesn't immediately identify us as a church. When a visitor does come, we have no physical mechanisms to get their contact info nor anything that we can send home with them that tells them who we are and what we're about. There's a lot of other things that we're lacking in, but you guys get the picture. And we need to make a plan to address these things and put a team in place to ensure that these things are implemented. We'll talk more about that in, 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 at a later time. Fifth thing, we don't know how to engage people who are culturally different from us. 
Let's be honest. Our lives are pretty different from the people who live directly around us. In preparation for today, I started a class on multicultural ministry because that is what we're going to talk about when we talk about ministry in this neighborhood. One of the things that I've learned is how the early church faced and dealt with the same kind of issues that we're going to face here. You can go back in your own time and look at Acts chapter 15 if you want to dig into that. God called us to this community and put us in these buildings among these people. Our people. He has placed us here to make disciples. I read an article this week, or actually that was last week, that described God's vision for the church as a gumbo. Okay? So this is the next point for today is the church is a gumbo. All right? I want you to look with me at Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. And I'll explain what I mean by gumbo. said, and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. This prophecy is the fulfillment of the great commission that Jesus gave his disciples, one that we look at regularly. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority, remember we just sang about that, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you to the end of the age. God's vision and plan for our church is to be multicultural. God did not send Jesus to save one particular group of people. He sent Jesus to redeem the world. And God was intentional in creating such a diverse landscape of people. And they are all created in His image. If we want our church, I'm gonna, I want to I wanna make sure you're with me on this. If we want our church to be a reflection of of the kingdom of God, we must intentionally reach out to people that are not like us. This is where the idea, that article I was telling you, of the gumbo came from. It says, a friend of mine, Derek Hicks, used illustration of gumbo for us to understand the unity and the diversity of the body of Christ. He says this, gumbo is not a tidy dish, but it's an assortment of flavors and colors that oddly come together to create a glorious taste. Can I get an amen? Unlike the melting pot, gumbo represents the colorful expressions of given communities and does not disguise the robustness of its elements. He goes on to highlight that gumbo is a communal dish in nature. He says, gumbo is not intended to be kept to oneself. This dish must be shared because in its essence, it exudes a posture of fellowship and cooperation of many flavors and textures. Simply put, he says, you cannot make a gumbo without sharing it with a whole bunch of folks. Amen? When people come over together over gumbo, he says, ideas are swapped, traditions are uncovered and created, songs are sung, and friendship bonds are formed. God's called the Gathering Place West to be a gumbo. And I cannot be more excited about that. Y'all know what my favorite thing is to cook? Gumbo. Thank you. There's my girl. But here's the thing. Gumbo is not a dish that you can just throw together at the last minute. Matter of fact, I didn't even think about this. Last night, Bethany and I left 
here, and we were going to go to Sam's to, you know, we got to get prepared for the big winter storm, and we were talking about what we could cook, and I was like, well, man, a gumbo would be good, you know, if it's going to be cold, and she's like, when are you going to do that? I was like, well, I can start it tonight, and she's like, and by the time you get the pot hot enough, it's going to be time to go to bed, and we talked through, like, the next three days, and there's no time within the next three days that I can make a proper gumbo, and I was like, okay, forget it, we'll do something else. It's a process that takes time. It has a sequence of steps. It must be done in order. To be good, care has to be taken at every step. What happens if you walk away from the gumbo pot while you're cooking the roux? It burns, okay? You have to stand over it. You've got to give it a lot of love. As we've already learned, this is not going to be an easy or a quick process. But, but like a good gumbo, it is worth the effort, for us to begin, we've got to start off like you start off with any good gumbo. You start by making a roux. We're not going to take a shortcut. We're not going to the grocery store and buying one in a jar. That's not gumbo. That's chicken soup with some brown stuff in it. This is not, this is not an easy process. But here's where we start. You start a gumbo by getting the pot out and committing to an amount of time that it's going to take to make that roux, Right? And if God's calling us to be a gumbo, we must begin by acknowledging God's call and agreeing to that process as he leads us. We've got to get out the big pot. We've got to turn on a low flame. We've got to add our oil and our flour. And we've got to stir it until it's just right. Nothing else gets added to the pot until the roux is done. I believe this is where we are. We are at the end of the roux process. God sent us here nine years ago and has been cooking the roux to prepare us for adding the rest of the elements. God has put us in this place at this time. The flame of the Holy Spirit has been transforming us so that we are ready for more things to be added to our pot. And I don't know if y'all know this, but he gave us a big old pot, right? You know what you do with a big pot? You make a big gumbo. The evidence that, that tells us that we're at the end of the room is the visitors that we've started have coming in over the last several months. As part of this class I attended, they referenced a study that was done on diversity in the church as a whole across the United States. They compared this finding to the most extremely segregated cities in the United States. They asked what percent, they picked six cities, the most segregated in the country, and they said what would they have to experience, what kind of disruption to become more diverse. The most extreme cities were rated at 60%. That means they'd have to have 60% major disruption in order to fix the segregation issues. The church as a whole was rated at 91%. Let me help you understand that. That means that the churches in the United States would have to experience a 91% disruption in order for the church to be unsegregated. I share that illustration so that we can confirm what our eyes see. I used this term last week and I put the definition up here because I was not wrong. I said we are a homogeneous group that does not reflect the call and the vision that Jesus has for the church homogeneous, one, is of the same or similar kind or nature, or two, of uniform structures or composition throughout. Our church as a whole is a pretty homogeneous group. And look, this is not condemnation. 
We are who we are because we have been following God's lead. But God is saying it is time for something new. He's been cooking the roux. Now it's time to add to the pot. And as a side note, the segregation in the church, I don't believe overall was intentional. But it's the result of how the church in America was taught to do evangelism. And that's back in the 70s. That's a whole different rabbit trail I don't want to run down today. But if you'd like to talk through that, I'd be happy to share that data with you. So, what's it going to take to move us toward this vision that God has for his church? It's going to require disruption. And for us, that means prompting by the Holy Spirit. It means that we're committing to a process. We're saying, God, we see the vision. We're in for what you're calling us to do. And then we ask him to tell us what to do from there. It's going to take the Holy Spirit working in every one of our lives. I cannot do this for us. I can do this for me. I can control my life. Each of us independently is going to have to commit to this process and follow as the Holy Spirit leads. We begin by receiving the prompting from the Holy Spirit and then we do what he says. And I want to remind us, that's what we began as a church. That was our focus. To hear God and to do what he says. Look at me with the, at the church of the birth. And I want us to identify what made the church expand the way it did. The obvious church answer is the Holy Spirit. But there was something tangible that happened in addition to the Holy Spirit. This is a passage we're probably all familiar with. Acts chapter 2 verse 41 through 47. So those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is when Peter preached at the, and when the Holy Spirit came. Said so they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I learned this in my class, and if you'll click that next slide up. This is a, a literary, a common literary technique we see in Scripture. It's called a chiastic structure. Okay, and If you look at this passage, it begins and it ends with numerical growth in the new church. And in a chiastic structure, when they speak and they write in that way, they put the effect on the end and the beginning. And if you look at the very center, that's the cause of the effect. And if you can read that, it says the cause is self-sacrificial life of the church. And that comes from verse 44. The church's growth is the effect brought about by the church living sacrificially growth is not about good preaching it's not about having the right programs it's not about having the right staff the perfect worship team or even a building growth is a result of a church that is living sacrificially for its community in response to the holy spirit i want you to i want you to realize that the closeness that you guys have in your life group the basis of that is the way that you sacrifice your lives for one another. That when someone in your group has a need, the whole group piles on and says, we're here, we're going to help. What do you need? We see that over and over and over again. I want us to identify that if we are going to build this gumbo that God's calling us to build, we got to live that way not just for ourselves, but for 
our community. Amen? This is a real-life demonstration of the gospel. It is role-modeling for others the life and the ministry of Jesus. It's going to Nathaniel and saying, let me tell you about the Messiah that we've just found. And, and, and Nathaniel saying, I don't know about that. And you say, let me show you. You want to show somebody who Jesus is? Live sacrificially for them. Live the way that Jesus lived for you. It's learning to, to put others before yourself. This is what disruption will look like for us on a daily basis. It's setting our own needs, our own desires aside and saying, I know that I really want to do this thing, but I got somebody in my life over here who needs my help, and this is more important than what I want. That's what disruption looks like. It's the kind of life that Jesus led. This means that all of us are going to have to look at our personal lives. We've got to look at our lives corporately and ask if we are living the way that Jesus wants us to. See, here's the thing. You don't accidentally live sacrificially. You don't fall into that. It can only happen if you prioritize it, if you evaluate the priority that you have set. I read a quote this week by a guy named Greg Reed. He said, a dream is written down with a date becomes a goal. A goal broken down into steps becomes a plan. A plan backed by action makes your dreams come true. This is precisely what we must do. We got we to gotta see the goal. We got to break it down into steps and we got to live it out in action. We do this as we abide. I am not saying we're going to go outside the Holy Spirit and we're going to create a plan about how we're going to engage this community. I'm saying we're going to do what we've always done, but we're going to do it with focus. And we're going to say, God, with this vision that you have given us for the McKisson neighborhood, what do you want me to do? Let him set the agenda. Let him make the plan. And then you do what you've always done. You follow him. God has given us the vision. He's given us the dream. We ask him what steps. And if we don't, if we don't do this process, we will find that we are only dreaming about what could be to represent the kingdom of God, but never realizing that dream. If we don't do this, we will see the vision that God has for us. We will see the vision that God has for the church and we'll go, man, that looks amazing. And we'll never get there. So where do we start? We all remember, I'm sure, the blessed acrostic. If you haven't been around for the last 10 years, you don't know what I'm talking about. Bless means begin with prayer, listen to them, eat with them, serve them, and then share the gospel. That's where we start, right? But guess what you have to know before you can bless somebody? You have to meet them, right? That's important. You don't just show up to somebody you don't know. I mean, I guess you could, but it's going to come off real awkward. But the first thing we've got to do is we've got to meet people, all right? We're going to still operate within the blessed across. We're still going to talk about that. However, if we don't know some of these people, we've got to start there. If they don't know us, we start by introducing ourselves. And then we do what's called building social capital. Here's some examples of what that might look like, okay? We could have house meetings. We can do needs assessments. We can do community service projects. We can ramp up our communication. We could do regular, specific prayer for people in our community, about needs that we see in our community. And this is something that I want our life groups to talk, to talk about, to pray about, and to hear God's voice, and then let's do what he says. For the last year, we've spent our Sunday mornings focusing 
on knowing Christ so that we can do what? Come on, church. To make him known. We want to know him and make him known. During that time, we've been studying the book of Luke and learning about who Jesus is. At this point, we've got to take the next step and begin applying these things that we see Jesus doing in our lives to live every day with others in mind as we abide in Christ. God has given us a vision for his work in this community and for ministry that he's called each of us to. If our goal is to know Jesus and to abide in him, we must allow him to reveal his desire for our personal and corporate work in this community and the places where we live and we work. I want to end today with a testimony of what this has looked like in my life. Last year, through my work with Sin Law Interfaith, I got to meet an incredible man. His name's Reverend Avery Hamilton, who's the pastor at First Baptist Church in Colfax, Louisiana. As probably most of you know, I grew up in and still live in Grant Parish, of which Colfax is our county seat. That's where our, that's where our parish courthouse is. All of my life, there has been an unsettling amount of racism in my parish. I experienced it firsthand all through school. I still experience that today. There were stories that I was told about why things were the way they were, the way they were. And to make a long story short, all of those stories that I had been told were blatant lies. And I had no idea. I believed it to be the truth. I mean, there were historical signs in front of the courthouse that told those lies. It wasn't like a couple of people told some lies. History told lies. Over the last 23 years, God has done a ton of work in my heart to remove those lies and replace them with love and respect. And when I met Avery Hamilton, I received a blessing from God that I did not know I was missing. Over the course of just a few conversations, I learned the truth about the history of my parish, the place where I live, and about literally racism itself across the southern United States. Avery encouraged me to, to do my own research, to go read some books. He wanted me to understand. He wanted to share with me the true history of my parish and how the events that transpired shaped race relations across our country. In spending time doing the research and building a relationship with, with Avery, building that capital that we just talked about, paved the road for Avery and I to become great friends. Matter of fact, he texted me last week when I was working on this and said, hey brother, I'm just praying for you. My life has been forever changed because of Avery's love and friendship, because Avery stepped across a line culturally for me. He did something for me and it changed my life. Because I know him, I understand my world better. My life is fuller than it was ever before. My life became a gumbo because of all the different followers of Jesus that God has introduced me to over the last year. All of them bold men and women of God. I think of, of Stella Poindexter. I think of, of Reverend Avery Hamilton. I think of Reverend Green. I think of all of these men and women, pastors and lay people who have been involved in the work in Sin Law Interfaith, who I love dearly, and any of them, I could call them right now and say, I need your help, can you come to me? And they would drop whatever and come. And that's happened not because I'm a great guy, not because they're a great guy, because what we share in common is a love for the Lord. We are the church, 
And it is an expression of what the kingdom of God is supposed to be. God orchestrated all of this in my life so that I could get a greater glimpse of what the kingdom of God is supposed to be. That's what God wants for all of us. If we will allow God to work in our lives to help us embrace all people, we're going to all have these kinds of stories where our world has been opened up because we understand people who are not like us. Every time I meet with new people that are not like me, the same thing always happens. I walk away from that initial meeting going, there's a lot about their life that is so completely different from me. But what we always have in common are the core values of our lives. Who God is, what he's done for us, and how we are called to love people. There's a lot more, but that's the top three. This call for us to become multicultural is not just for the sake of the neighborhood. God did not call us here to fix them or to save them. God called us here to be the church. And together, we are going to make one another's lives better. This is more about God asking you and me to follow him and discover the beauty of the kingdom that he created. God has done great works in our lives over the last 14 years since he began the Gathering Place Church. But there is much more that he wants us to discover for us to discover about him and about his kingdom. And y'all, I am here for it. Let's go. God's challenged me in some areas that I need to allow him to change. And he's given me a vision for what our church could be. I don't know about you, but I am deeply dissatisfied with what is because God has given me a vision of what could be. The future he has revealed inspires hope in my life. I hope and I pray that together we will become a church that has a true representation of diversity that we will experience when we get to heaven. That when we walk through those doors, we're not surprised by what we see. We go, man, this is exactly what I thought it was going to be. Maybe, just maybe, that will reveal to our neighborhood and to central Louisiana what is possible if the church will only follow Jesus. I got one final question. Will you join me in pursuing this vision that God has given us for this church to become multicultural? Let's pray. Jesus, I am so excited about the call that you have for us. Lord, I ask that as we think about these things that you have said this week, Father, that that you would do exactly what we asked last week, that the things that break your heart would break our heart, Father, that we would begin to get a glimpse of the glory of your kingdom, a kingdom that is diverse, a kingdom that has so many expressions. Father, I ask that you would create in us a beautiful gumbo, one that that rallies people around us because they want to experience the kingdom of God. Father, I ask for myself and for my brothers and sisters in this room that you would do the work in our hearts that is necessary to help us to see the vision and to follow your vision as you lead us. Father, I ask that you begin to speak specific things to every one of us, ways in which we can engage our community, that we can build relational capital, 
that we can begin to know the people in this neighborhood in meaningful ways so that they can know you in a meaningful way. Jesus, I am, I am humbled by the call that you have placed on us. And I ask with all of my heart that you would do the work in me as the leader of this church and in this body as we follow you. Let it be your vision, your work, your call, not ours. Jesus, I ask this in your name. Amen.